Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Monday, February 27th, 2017. I am your host this week, Sam Klein. Uh, I am calling you from Denver, Colorado. I am joined by my two usual co-hosts in Washington, D.C., Donald Wine. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Uh, and still recovering from a wild night at the Oscars at his uh, <laughs> home in Atlanta, Georgia, Jason Evans. Yeah, I uh, last night was unbelievable. If you're a movie person, and everybody knows I'm a big movie buff, I was watching, I couldn't believe it, I kept on hitting rewind on my DVR to watch it over and over and over again, saying, how did this happen? How did this happen? Which is kind of how I felt earlier in the week when Duke played Syracuse. How did this happen? How did this you happen? Stole, you stole my transition about how <laughs> oh, did this happen? Sorry. How did this happen? Two games this week, uh, one with a shocking ending and one just with a sort of pathetic pace to it. Uh, Duke, Duke lost twice this week on the road, once at Syracuse on a buzzer beater. Uh, final score of that game was 78-75. to 75, And then over the weekend against Miami, a as I noted, a, a lackluster performance that ended with a score of 55 to 50. So Jason, I'll start with you. I guess we can, we can take them one at a time. Let's start with Syracuse. What were your impressions of that game? Uh, well, Duke fans know the name Bootsy Thornton. Bootsy Thornton, of course, was the star for St. John's. Actually, he wasn't a star. He was a good player, but not like, you don't game plan against him. And uh, Bootsy Thornton, on consecutive occasions when Duke played St. John's, I want to say it was in the 1990s, I think it was the late 90s perhaps, um, had career games against Duke. Just, you know, games where, and this was a guy who, like I said, you know, he averaged like 13 points a game, 14 points a game, and then he put in 30 against Duke, uh, 30 plus, um, to, to lead St. John's to victories. And as a result, a lot of Duke fans refer to the Bootsy, uh, or we've been Bootsied, meaning some guy who you really don't expect to have a great game suddenly just comes out of nowhere and 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 kills you and uh, and the Syracuse game we got double boot seed because Tyus Battle and John Gillen aren't that good I mean they're not bad but they aren't as good as they were in this game and it was I mean John Gillen uh, to put up 26 points this is a guy who routinely scores like like, he had a run earlier this year. They played Boston College. He scored four points. They played UNC. He scored four points. They played Notre Dame. He scored no points, zero points. They played Wake Forest. He scored six points. So that's 14 points over the course of four games. He puts up 26 against Duke. By the way, the very next game, over the weekend, they played Louisville. After going nine for 14 from the field against Duke and scoring 26 points with six assists and zero turnovers, they played Louisville, and John Gillen scored 10 points with three turnovers and one assist. I mean, I don't understand <laughs> why these guys do this against us. It's pretty frustrating. And the interesting thing I thought about the Syracuse game was that, especially in the second half when they were just pouring it on, Gillen and Tyus Battle were not taking good shots. It's one thing when a guy beats you and you go, oh, you know, he he's getting where he wants to on the floor. He's getting shots he wants. And And when we talk about the Miami game and we talk about – um, Bruce Brown, we're going to talk about a guy who got the shots he wanted to and succeeded at them. I don't think the Gillen Battle took the shots that, that Jim Beheim wanted them to take. Tyus Battle was taking turnaround jump shots from 18 with a hand in his face, and he was banking them in. He did that multiple times. There's no defense for that. That's just a guy getting lucky on his home floor. A guy who, again, isn't that good. And 
Yeah, I think I, you know, I think coming, my impression of watching that that the Syracuse offense, as you said, it was like they were taking a lot of bad shots throughout the second half. I kept thinking, well, they're making shots, but it's not like they're it's not like they're playing as well as the score indicates. And Duke is just going to end up winning by a few points because they can't keep this up, and they and they just did. Yeah, they, they shot better than seventy percent from the field in the second half. And again, I didn't think Duke played bad defense. You know, coming into this game, I remember I was the one who previewed Syracuse for us, and I talked about Andrew White the third, who is their big scorer. Andrew White the third, their best player. Andrew White the third takes like ten three pointers a game. We put Matt Jones on him. He shot one of two on three-pointers, one of four field goals overall. He scored seven points. If you told me coming into this game that Andrew White III was going to play all 40 minutes and only score seven points on one of four field goal shooting, I would have said, okay, so what, Duke's going to win by 15? It's crazy. This was an aberrant game. This was a game that Syracuse played that they're not going to play probably again all season. They, they had guys who are not this good play out of their minds. And it happens sometimes. And, you know, Don, that's Donald, what did you want to add about Syracuse? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, you're going back to that, you know, the Bootsy Thornton game. Um, it was actually 17 years ago yesterday, February 26, 2000, which is the last time we lost a non-conference game at home. Uh, but getting back to the Syracuse game, uh, I think I think Jason hit it on the head real, real good with uh, John Galen just going off for no reason whatsoever. Um, and it, was, it seemed like it was all in the second half. And, and the, the fact that if you look at the box score and you see that, you know, we only allowed 25 points in the first half, that's a pretty good first half. Uh, the second half, we scored 42 points, which usually would win a ball game, except for the fact that we gave up 53 points. And I, I, don't, un, I don't know how it unraveled because, you know, watching the game, it didn't seem like it was a quick unraveling. It was just kind of a slowly but surely they, they were creeping back. And no matter what we were doing, we were scoring on a lot of different possessions, it just seemed like we were not, we were not getting them, getting them, pulling away from them. And it just kept creeping in. One thing I will say that foul trouble allowed them to get to the line and shoot a lot of free throws. That is probably why they crept back into the game. It didn't seem like they were doing much. Uh, but in the second half, they, it, there's a point, I think, about the 10-minute mark left in the game where they just started hitting everything. And I mean every single shot. In the second half, they shot 71%. And I'm pretty sure every one of their makes, every one of their 17 field goals that they made was in the last 10 minutes of the game. And that's how they, that's how they got, came back and won. And I'm not quite certain how that happened because there was a lot of possessions where, as you guys mentioned, we played pretty good defense and forced them to take some terrible shots. They just went in. And, and I'm not sure how to explain that other than, you know, sometimes those kind of moments happen. And, and you know, it was, it was to the point where when Gillen shot the three, uh, the buzzer beater, as soon as he let it go, I, I'm, I'm, at a watch, I'm at a party with some friends. As soon as that ball was in the air, everybody's like, well, that's going in. And, and that was just kind of the feeling that you had because that was a game where over the last few minutes of the game, every single time they would launch something that looked so stupid it would still go in. And that's really sometimes you just can't explain that. Yeah, and then I think that the, the one thing worth touching on that will lead us to the next game here as we, as we move forward is that Grayson Allen had a not-so-great performance against Syracuse. He shot 2 of 11 from the field and looked generally uh, like he was out of sorts. And, and I guess afterwards they decided that he was out of sorts enough that he was just going to sit for the Miami game and, and recover from 
from his ongoing or, or nagging injuries. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we've discussed at length the, what he means to this team and what a fully healthy Grayson Allen does for the prospects of, of this Duke team headed into the tournament. And I think that it's a, it's a shame that we haven't gotten to see him recently be fully healthy to, to show off all that he can do. And it was clear against Syracuse. And then, and so as we look ahead at Miami, Grayson Allen doesn't play. Um, so Donald, you, you're more familiar, I think with Miami than, than Jason and I are. What did you see that, and really, I want to focus on on Duke's offense. What is it that Miami was doing that that made it so hard for Duke to score? They only scored fifty points in this game. So I I admittedly didn't watch much of this game. Um, I was out with people and watched a little bit of the highlights later on, and it seemed like it's hard to say. You know, it, did, there, it seemed like in the first half we weren't taking terrible shots. Um, again, they just weren't going in. We we shot thirty four percent. It's the second half that was really concerning and the fact that we it seemed like we made some bad decisions late. And that's not something that we normally do. I can understand if we take some good shots or and they just don't go in. You you kind of expect that sometimes when the ball's not going in the hole. But it seemed like we were taking we were panicking, um, which is something we haven't seen from this team in probably a couple months, um, or at least a month. But I'm not quite certain what led to that. I'm not sure why we, we, I mean, we just didn't show up. We, we hit five three pointers. Um, that sort of thing that kind of spurs our offense is hitting those backbreaking threes and getting our momentum and, and kind of spreading the offense out so that we can do a lot of other things. Uh, and that just wasn't there. Jason Tatum had a terrible shooting day. Um, Luke Kennard had a bad shooting day. And those are you two guys that you rely, that we're relying on lately for points. So if they're not scoring, uh, from the field, then that is, that's going to be a backbreaker for us. And uh, 50 points is just something that is unheard of with this offense. And I'm not sure what led to the off day, but everyone seemed to catch it at the wrong time. Um, and, and Miami exposed that. Miami's not a great shooting team either. They didn't shoot well for the whole game. They, I mean, they shot, what, 39%, 38% from the floor for the whole game? So they weren't, yeah. they were taking terrible shots too. Um, we had, and you could say it's a tribute to great defense uh, on both ends, but I think in the end, we just, you know, we just didn't come to play on the offensive end and thought that we could do just enough to get by with a big week coming up. Maybe we're looking ahead to Florida State. Maybe we're looking ahead to UNC, uh, but we should have been looking at Miami, and Miami kicked us in the teeth in, in just, I, I don't know. It's, it's a terrible, it was a terrible offensive display. Yeah, I got a question for both of you. Oh, yeah, sure. I, I, got, I got a question for both of you guys. And, and I seriously looked at this and thought about it a long time. Who had a good game? Who for Duke, not even a good game, who for Duke had, a, had even a, a decent game against Miami? I guess maybe Frank Jackson. See, I, I, I thought Frank Jackson, even though he, he shot well and was aggressive, and I like that, I guess you would say he had a, a decent game. He had some atrocious turnovers. I mean, just god-awful turnovers. Um, Duke yeah. had a bunch of really, really bad turnovers, most of which occurred um, either at key moments or uh, in ways that allowed Miami to, to take off and get a fast break um, uh, very, very quickly and, and, and easy points against us. By the way, speaking of fast breaks, Duke's conversion percentage on like two-on-ones this week was like maybe 5%. Against Syracuse and Miami, it seemed like every time we had a two-on-one or three-on-one fast break, we threw it away or we missed the shot. It was 
Uh, we were terrible on the fast break. But but seriously, I put the question to you guys: Who against Miami had a good game? Yeah, I I I did want to go back to your point about the about the fast breaks that um, we kind of we kind of glossed over that against Syracuse. That you could say that Duke lost that game in the first half, even though they were winning by like eight points at halftime. They played well enough to be winning by 20. about fifteen or sixteen points. Yeah, and and that. Any any hope of a Syracuse comeback could have been you know could have been snuffed right out if if Duke had been more successful in what should have been easy plays for them. Um, it should have been slam dunks. I, what should have been slam yeah. dunks or open layups. Yeah, and, and uh, it's unbelievable. But but uh, again, um, did you want to okay. answer? Did you want to answer Jason's question? No, I I, yeah, I mean I do. I think Frank Jackson had a decent game, but also uh, getting back to the fact that Tatum and and Kennard really didn't. I know I know Kennard had sixteen points, but you can't say that he had a great game. You know, Frank Jackson had to take more shots. He took 11 shots uh, yesterday or on Saturday, and that's not something that is part of his game. I think part of that, uh, he, you know, he had three assists. He had some terrible turnovers, but he had three of them. Um, we didn't have that many turnovers as a team. You know, 13 isn't, isn't too terrible. Um, that's obviously a little bit higher than you want. You probably want to be under well, but it's that so many of them led to fast break layups. Though. Exactly, and Bruce Brown just exposed us on those turnovers. Like a lot, I don't know how many points he had off turnovers, but you know he he only attempted two three pointers and still ended up with twenty five points. He only had two free throws, so the rest of that is in the paint. And exactly what we were trying not to do is uh, keep these guys out of the paint because that's where a lot of their points came from. Okay, I think we have. I think we've exhausted the <laughs> the grueling uh, uh, aspects of these two losses from last week. Shall we move on to the games coming up this week? We can do some quick previews because uh, they're two opponents that we've already seen each once this year. Um, the first game Tuesday night tomorrow against Florida State. That is Duke's last home game of the season. It'll be senior night for Matt Jones and Emil Jefferson. And then Saturday at North Carolina, the traditional end of the season match against the Tar Heels who, have, uh, who are very close to or no, they have locked up at least a share of the ACC regular season title. So um, another outstanding season for UNC. Jason, can Duke uh, recover here and, and win a couple of tough games against good opponents, good top of the ACC opponents uh, headed into the ACC tournament? Well, you certainly would hope so. I mean, if you look at the ACC standings, it is unbelievably bunched there in the middle. And if we don't play well, um, you know, we're playing the the – top two teams in the conference. If we don't play well, if we drop both those games, you know, we're looking at <laughs> if we're 10 and 8, um, you know, we could be 7th or 8th in the conference. It's really not out of the realm of possibility. Um, although the, uh, you know, although the, the real distinction here that we're looking at, if we're talking about the ACC standings, is being top four versus being next four. If we're, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be tough for us to drop out of the top eight and therefore have to play an additional ACC game. But like you said, Duke is Duke is still fighting for and in contention for for one of those top four seeds and and two days worth of buys in the tournament. Yeah, and it's so hard to tell who's going to get those tops other than North Carolina, um, because everybody plays each other. Look, we play Florida State. Um, I think Louisville plays Notre Dame. Uh, My, Miami plays Florida State. It's, it's like everybody's playing each other. So even figuring out, oh, you know, here's the scenario where this or that happens is almost impossible to figure out. I mean, clearly we're going to have to, we're going to have to at least go one and one, maybe two. If we go two and oh, then we're definitely going to be in the top four. Um, 
uh, and get the the double buy. If we go one and one, it's it's harder to say. I, I think that the game against Florida State is the one that you would expect us to be favored and and that you would hope and expect that we would win because we're at home. And uh, as we've seen again and and again and again uh, in the ACC, it's really really hard to win on the road. And I want to I want to give you guys some scores from Florida State playing on the road. Here are Florida State's road games um, in the ACC. They, early on, they had a great win at Virginia. Huge win. Big deal. They then played at UNC, and they lost by 13. Their next road game, they played at Georgia Tech. They lost by 22. They played at Syracuse. They lost by 10. They beat Miami, which was a big road win. They went to Notre Dame. They lost by 12. They went to Pitt. They lost by 14. And then over the weekend, they beat Clemson by 2. But you can see that in most of those road games, even against teams that you would consider, you know, certainly not the top tier of the conference, like Georgia Tech, they get beat, not just beat, they get beat by double digits when they're on the road. Now, that's not that Florida State's a bad team. It's that teams play a hell of a lot better at home than they do on the road in the ACC. That's just reality. So put Duke back home, and hopefully we won't have another game where we shoot you know, 30% from the field like we did this week when we were on the road in those two games, and, and a game where we, you know, can hit more than five three-pointers. Um, so I, I, I would expect, you know, if I was picking one key to that Florida State game, it's that, you know, our offense returns to what it's supposed to be, and we start hitting the shots that we're supposed to hit. I'll, I'll ask you guys this, though. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think Jefferson was also limited in the Miami game. I'm I'm wondering if Allen and Jefferson play. I guess they'll play because Jefferson's a senior and he wants to play in his final game. But I really wonder how much those guys will play uh, against Florida State, just because they're still clearly, clearly hurt. Yeah, and and I you know, certainly for his for his senior night, it would be great for him to play, and particularly because he you know had to battle through injuries last year and and got the fifth year to come back and all that. I think that he he deserves all the accolades. Um, but you're right. I, I don't know how much how much it's worth having him play if he's if he's going to continue being hobbled. You'd rather him get healthy, possibly go on a run in the ACC tournament, or really, most importantly, be ready for the NCAA tournament. And and I'm I'm just not sure. You know, we we talked last week about the potential benefits of having of having either or both of those guys fit. And I think we saw the effect of the injuries, and then also what it takes away from the team when Allen's not on the floor. And and I'm not sure exactly what the what the best remedy is for that here. I I would say that you know it's kind of a cop out, but the coaching staff knows the, knows the most about what condition the players are in and and whether it's worth having them play. And Emil Jefferson's a team guy, and and will understand if the best thing for the team is if he sits out a game or two so that he can fully recover and not be worried about about playing on on an injured leg or or whatever still ailing him. And and to be healthy for when the for when the postseason comes around. See, I think I'm a, I'm on the opposite end. Um, I think, and this is a soft prediction. I think that Emil plays 25 minutes, which is still less than what he normally plays, but he plays a, a significant amount of minutes, and he gets 15 rebounds. And I think it's because, like you guys said, this is his last game. If anyone is has been like excited about coming back. For one final year, it's been him, and and it's sad, it's sad that like a, a good chunk of that was taken out due to injury. Again, I think this is important to him. I think this is a game that he has been looking forward to, that he missed last year, and was one of the reasons why he came back to to play in Cameron one final time. And I think that if 
if this he knows is going to be his game, he's going to be up and ready for it. He may have to be pulled off of the court, you know, at at times uh, to limit his well, minutes. Hopefully, hopefully he rebounds better than he has the last two games where he he had a total of nine rebounds last yes. week. Yeah, I agree. But I think this is the game. This is the game where everybody it, there's always an added juice when it's your final game. And I think you know, I think Matt Jones. I look for him to have a pretty good game, and I look for Emil Jefferson to just ball out because I think that this is a game that especially he, you know, a six-year senior, has been waiting for. Um, and I think that is what you live for. Like, he's, he's been waiting for this moment. And I'm sure he's probably like, you know what, if you keep me out of these games, I'm, I'm hobbled here, I'm hobbled there. Coach, don't take me out this game. And I think he's ready for it, and that's why I expect to see a big game from him. Hey, guys, I got a question about that Florida State game. I'm wondering if Grayson Allen gets honored like a senior before the game, and I bet he does. Because Grayson Allen was on course to graduate after three years, and the stated goal of this season was he was coming back for one year, and then he was going to go to the NBA. Now, he has not had, you know, due to injury and other things, he has not had nearly the season that folks expected when he was preseason player of the year, um, not just in the ACC but in the nation. And, and clearly, you know, that kind of an award is, is off the table for him at this point. But, uh, and, and people, you know, seem to still be wondering, oh, is he going to go to the NBA? I'm betting, first of all, that he is planning to go to the NBA. Uh, and I'm betting that Duke honors him the way they honor a senior, um, along with Matt Jones and Emil Jefferson. What do you guys so, think? I would, be, I, would, I would be surprised by it only because we haven't heard a lot of chatter about it leading up to this game. Right. That, you know, you might have, you, like you might have heard in interviews or, or in any of those, I mean, specifically in interviews or in, or in post-game press conferences about, you know, how this is, this is like the end of Allen's college career and et cetera, et cetera. So even if he is leaving after this year, and, and I know, Jason, you seem pretty convinced of it, um, even if he is leaving after this year, I doubt that they go through all the ceremony just because we haven't heard about it much. And, you know, there might be an opportunity somewhere down the line, maybe at the at the team banquet in April when, when, you know, everybody's futures are a little bit more known. Um, maybe, maybe we'll hear more about it, but I, I don't think we're going to hear it um, on Tuesday night. I don't either. And, and the reason why I think this is a little different than the uh, Jason Williams situation, um, Jason Williams, when he came back, he announced, Hey, I'm coming back. I'm staying one more year. I am graduating and I'm going to the NBA after that. Um, and it was it was very public the entire season that it was his final year. Now, I think a lot of us expect this to be Grayson Allen's last year, but he hasn't announced it in the way that uh, Jay Will did when we kind of coined this whole Jay Will plan, the three-year um, graduation plan that a lot of Duke players in, over, you know, do anyway. Um, I believe the same, it was the same for um, uh, Gerald Henderson as well. Um, he ended up graduating, but it wasn't a big, he wasn't honored as a senior. Um, when no, he, I, I actually, Donald, I think you're wrong. I believe that Gerald Henderson graduated a few years later. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Not, yeah. I'm, I don't, I forgot who I was thinking of. That was, uh, that it was a junior plan, same type of deal and ended up not being honored with the team. So I think this is a little different situation. I don't think they honor him, um, to, uh, tomorrow night, but I think that they, like you said, during the banquet is probably going to be clear at that point that he'll be gone. And that way they can honor him properly um, with the rest of the seniors that they normally do. All right. Do we want to talk about North Carolina a little bit? Donald, we had Jason give us a key for Florida State. Why don't you tell us what you're looking for against UNC? Oh, well, last time we, you know, we played well. Uh, obviously, that was at home. This is a game that we want to mess up for them. Um, a lot of people 
uh, talk about senior night. We just talked about it for us and how people like to get up for senior night uh, to send the guys off right. This is one where we get to, a chance to ruin a senior night. Um, UNC has done that to us on several occasions. We've done it to them on several occasions. And what I'm looking for is uh, play on the defensive end that will spur our offense. And that's rebounding. That's perimeter defense. That's interior defense. I think, to, I think Saturday is where it all needs to click for our defense because that is what's going to stifle the momentum and the crowd and all the hoopla around UNC um, that they will have on that day. So that is a big, it's, it's a, obviously a clear key to show up on the defensive end. But I think what happens with our defense is that our defense this year, when we are on, spurs our offense a lot better because we have taken the momentum away from them. And that makes our offense seem a little more fluid, a little bit more easy. Um, so I think that's what I'm looking for in this game. Yeah, and I think that when you talk about the defense creating the offense, we said earlier specifically about the Syracuse game that Duke had a lot of missed opportunities on the fast break, which you know is a, is a negative by itself, but also speaks to the fact that Duke had a lot of opportunities in the fast break and that the defense was a lot more opportunistic. The rebounding generally has been good, and the Duke is able to recover the ball on the, on the defensive end and push it up the court really quickly. Um, Matt Jones is, is, is good at moving the ball. Um, Luke Kennard is obviously has been the best ball handler, I think, on the team this year. Jason Tatum's gotten a lot more confident, and you can see him getting better. I think there are a lot of options for uh, a lot of ways that Duke can move the ball up. Um, it's a matter of then executing once you're on the offensive end um, to get those points. Jason, was there anything you wanted to add it about North Carolina? Yeah, so uh, you recall that last time I said the key was uh, rebounding, and and Duke won the rebounding battle, and I'm convinced that's why we won the game. Um, I, I again, think rebounding, especially keeping them off the offensive boards, is going to be so huge. Did you guys see what they did to Pitt over the weekend? Um, They played Pittsburgh, which is a, 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 a strong team, a physical team, a team that usually rebounds fairly well, and um. Carolina got 24 offensive rebounds. Pitt had a total of 28 rebounds on the game. They had 28 rebounds in the game, and Carolina had 24 offensive rebounds. At one point during that game, Carolina, and I'm not talking early on, I'm talking it was in the second half, Carolina had grabbed three quarters of the shots that they had missed. If they put a shot up, there was a 75% chance, North Car- and they missed it, no, there was a 75% chance that Carolina was getting the offensive rebound. That's crazy. That's just silly, and it's going to be super hard to stop them. We won't win the game if if Carolina gets their usual 16, 18, 20-plus offensive rebounds. That's just reality. Uh, and the and the, other thing— And, and, and Isaiah Hicks is, is healthy in this game, so that helps them, which he—because yep. he wasn't available for the last one. Yep. And <clears throat> I'll tell you the other interesting thing that I've noticed about Carolina recently— they are an incredible passing team. They do a great job of sharing the ball against Pittsburgh. And again, I'm hearkening on just one game, but it, it's it's very telling. They had 23 assists. Now, who do you think led them in assists? Because it wasn't their point guard, Joel Berry. It was Theo Pinson. Kennedy Meeks. Seven... No. <clears throat> no, I was going to say Kennedy Meeks from getting all the offensive rebounds. I <laughs> know. <laughs> Theo Pinson had seven assists. Isaiah Hicks had six assists. And that's because... Carolina does an incredible job of passing on the interior, uh, guys driving to the hole and then dumping it off to guys like Kennedy Meeks and guys like Isaiah Hicks and their other big men, Tony Bradley, 
um, Kennedy Meeks and Tony Bradley combined against Pittsburgh to shoot 12 out of 14 from the field. That's a pretty good percentage. <laughs> and and a lot of that's because they get easy shots when when the other guys are, are driving and penetrating and dishing it off to them. Um, Carolina had 23 assists on 33 made baskets. That's just a crazy, crazy percentage. And they actually had assists on their first – I was going to say they had assists in their first 13 baskets of the game. Compare that compare that to their performance against us in the game in Cameron a few weeks ago where UNC only had 13 assists and turned the ball over five just, just five times, um, but but only 13 assists. So um, yeah. Duke was yeah. able to Duke was able to really lock it up on defense that night. Even though UNC scored 78 points, they were sort of out of sorts, and and you hope that they can that Duke can repeat the defensive performance like that even on the road. Yeah, and Carolina's going to be so emotional because, they, you know, they want revenge for the game they lost. It's going to be senior night, last game of the season. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to see a scenario where Duke wins this game uh, unless we shoot crazy good or unless we can somehow, you know, rebound with them, which, which we were able to do first time. And, uh, and, and my big hope is um, we have seen uh, more and more glimpses and emergences from Harry Giles and, and Marquise Bolden. And I think both of them will have to play well against Carolina, and I think they both will play against Carolina. Donald, anything else to add on UNC? No, I think that's I think that's it. You know, limit limit the turnovers, help with the rebounding, play great defense, staff for the momentum of the crowd, and 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 just the the Dean Domeness, and you have a ball game. I mean, I, I if you recall, you know, we we had the game a couple years ago where we won seventy four seventy three. And I think we even had an emergency podcast uh, in that, after that game because it was so uh, un, unexpected. And I think a win here, some people would say that a win here on Saturday would be unexpected. But if we play the way oh, yeah. we've been playing uh, if, in the, in, during that seven-game win streak where we were playing together, we had a lot of assists, we were using each other to feed off of the momentum and, and just kind of willing ourselves to win. This would be an unexpected win, but it'd probably be the sweetest because UNC somehow has, has defied all expectations and really ran this, ran this league for most of the season. And I think beating them on their home floor will give them a, something that the, the rest of the nation will say, oh, Duke may not be playing well, but they clearly have the answer against North Carolina, who we're really worried about. So I think that's what this game is going to be about in and, and, I think if we have the guts and we have the if we have the will, then we can make this a ball game, and I'm looking forward to it. I was going to say really quick, it's amazing how your feelings about a team, your attitude can change so quickly. And Donald just said, "Oh, Duke isn't playing that well." A week ago, we were on a seven-game win streak. We were up to a you know we were clearly up to a, a three seed um, in the NCAA tournament, and we were the team that no one wanted in their bracket. And then, you know, we have a game against Syracuse where they have two guys just go off in a way that they're just not ordinarily going to. And then we play a game at Miami. Um, you know, I mentioned last week it was Miami's senior night. Uh, they were getting one of their star players, their best players, back from from a three-game suspension. Duke was playing without Grayson Allen. Um, uh, Emil Jefferson was clearly, you know, hobbled and not – he only played 21 minutes. And and Duke lost, you know, what was arguably the worst game they played all year, and suddenly we're like, oh no, you know, the season's in trouble. But um, you know, it's just I I don't know if I have anything to say beyond that, except it's kind of amazing and weird how how the season can turn so quickly. 
I mean, at this time of year, basketball for you. Yeah, this time of year, that's what you're expecting. Uh, everyone's judging you off your last game and not necessarily, you know, they look at the last 10, but when you talk about how they played down the stretch, they look at the last couple games. And uh, the last couple games we haven't played well. We need to get back to what we were doing a week and a half ago. Yeah, I mean, like you said, against UNC, all we have to do to beat UNC is take care of the ball, shoot well, play good defense, and out-rebound them. Piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy. easy. And then I wanted to wrap up our quick preview of North Carolina by just mentioning Jason had, had said that it was senior night for UNC, and it's a big class for UNC that's graduating this year. So this is going to be the perhaps the last game we see uh, Duke play against Nate Britt and Kennedy Meeks and Isaiah Hicks. And did you guys know that Stillman White is a senior at North Carolina this year? He's not the only one. There's also a guy called Candler Coker. Candler well, Coker. I, I, assume, I assume that he's a he's a walk on one of the many walk ons that North, that uh, Roy Williams likes to carry just so they can go out first for warm ups to get everybody excited before the real team comes out. Yeah. Do you think I, he'll start him? Do you think Roy will start him? I I am <laughs> looking at the roster. I had never heard of him until today. Maybe he gets that he gets that senior treatment. I don't know. Like, hopefully Duke just just wins in a blowout, and then and then Mr. Coker can play five minutes at the end of the game. Yeah, I think I think yeah, he'll I think play. So. He's normally good at starting those guys, but you know, you say we're going to say goodbye to all these seniors. I'm pretty sure two weeks ago we said goodbye to Kenny Meeks when uh, Jason Tatum dunked That's him true. out of existence. Yeah, sure. They will admit perhaps that perhaps they're exhuming him just just to give him senior night mention. Uh, that I mean that'd be cool. Yeah. They can, very, they can prop him in front of the basket, and Jason Tatum can destroy him again. I'd be okay with that. We, can, we, 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 would, we would take that result. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up here with our standard agenda. We'll do a quick player of the week, which is, might be the saddest player of the week we've had in, in the last month or two, uh, and then we'll do parting shots. So, Donald, give me... Ugh, give me a player of the week. Uh, I'm going with Luke Kennard because Luke Kennard scored in double figures both games. And that's really all I have to say about that. Jason? Pass. I'm serious. I'm not picking anyone. There, 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 right. there's, there's no one that I, – I talked about the Miami game. Um, uh, the guys who I thought played okay or good against Syracuse did not play well against Miami. Frank Jackson, who's the only guy who played well against Miami, didn't play well against Syracuse. So I pass. I'm not handing out a player of the week this week. No one earned it. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to Jason Tatum for a, for a decent performance against Syracuse, although I hate, I hate doing it. I was actually thinking about picking. You know what? Forget it. I'll pick Frank Jackson for, his, for, his, for being the only passable performance against Miami. So Frank Jackson. I'm not sure if I picked him yet this year. So there you go. Um, and and then we'll close with parting shots. Jason, you want to go first? Yeah, I got a couple things I wanted to mention for my parting shot. The first one is, folks, if you haven't listened to J.J. Reddick's, um, not his own personal podcast, but the podcast where he was a guest um, of Bill Simmons, Bill Simmons' podcast. Uh, some folks wrote about this on the DBR. Um, uh, J.J. Uh, was a guest on Bill Simmons' podcast. I think it was a return favor because I think Bill Simmons was a guest on J.J.'s podcast over the summer. And it was a really good, really revealing interview. It's it's long, and there are parts of it that um, probably are too inside the NBA if you're, you know, if you're not someone who loves, loves, loves the NBA. Um, but, but there are a couple moments that I thought were really interesting and really good. The first one was 
and I don't know if JJ was joking or telling the truth or not, but he they talk very very briefly about the the uh, Carolina um, uh, cheating scandal. And J.J. mentions that he used to be a teammate of Reggie Bullock, who was at North Carolina. Now, Reggie Bullock was at North Carolina supposedly after the scandal had ended. And uh, But J.J. and Reggie Bullock were teammates in the NBA. And J.J. says that Reggie Bullock told him that he never went to class when he was at UNC. Um, and, you know, some people went, whoa, are, are, are you serious? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, that might be at least some anecdotal evidence that perhaps the Carolina scandal didn't end when they told us it ended. Um, frankly, their conduct in all this leads me to believe that they can't be trusted about anything anyway. Uh, but the other really interesting thing was uh, I love when J.J. spoke a little bit about the transition um, from high school to college, and he said that nothing can prepare you, nothing can prepare you for coming to college, walking out on the floor, and hearing 20,000 people chant, F you, J.J., um, at every single road game, and so it was really it was really hard on him at times. Uh, and I think it's you know it's interesting we we think of these kids as pros when they're still in college, and we expect them to act in a certain way. And I I think it it's sobering to me to think about a you know nineteen twenty year old being you know having all that negative stuff heaped upon them. I think it's uh. I think it's really unfortunate when it when it happens, and, and it makes me feel bad for booing opposing players. So that was the first thing I wanted to mention for my parting shot. The other parting shot was there's a really good article in the News and Observer uh, about Jason Williams, J. Will, uh, former Duke player, now an ESPN commentator, who talked a little bit about the fact that North Carolina doesn't recruit top players anymore, doesn't get top players anymore. And there were some amazing stats that he brought up or were brought up in this story do you guys know, I mean, Carolina hasn't gotten a top five recruit since Harrison Barnes in 2010. We are now, we're into 2017, and North Carolina hasn't had a top five recruit since Harrison Barnes. It's just amazing to think about. And you know that one of the things Jay Williams pointed out was that he said Harrison Barnes is a nice player in the NBA, but he's not a star in the league. And he said, and Jay Will said, you know, Kids who look around, look at the NBA, you know, look up to NBA stars. He said, "There's no one from North Carolina that they identify with on that level." Do you guys know the last time North Carolina had a had a player play in the All Star game? It was ten years ago. Rasheed Wallace and Anton Jameson played in the 2007 NBA All Star game. That's the last time UNC had an All Star. Ten years ago. Um, current high school seniors. They were like seven or eight years old the last time UNC had an NBA All-Star. And since then, Duke's had Luol Deng, and we've had Kyrie Irving multiple years, and we've got guys who are on the rise who appear to be future All-Stars, you know, guys like Jabari Parker, who look like they're going to be All-Stars in the future. Um, and, uh, you know, for North Carolina, this is just an ongoing drought of talent. And I'll close it by saying this. Props to Roy Williams, because this is now the second consecutive year where they appear to be one of the teams that's in prime position to win the national title, um, even though he's not getting the kind of recruits that should put him up at the top. So, you know, I hate to do it, but i got to give props to the guy. and They've had a great season. But you got to wonder, you know, when are they going to start getting recruits that, you know, will get them there consistently? It's it's a crazy, crazy world right now over at UNC. Donald? So I wanted to touch on a, a cool story that I saw yesterday. Um, Michigan State... Uh, 
Michigan State's final game, our, our final home game was yesterday against Wisconsin, and it was a big victory for them. Uh, they won 84-74 uh, to basically probably secure an at-large position for them in the uh, turn- bid for them in the NCAA tournament. But that's not the real story. The story was that it was senior day, as I mentioned, and uh, their senior guard, Aaron Harris, uh, tore his knee up earlier this month and was ruled out for the rest of the year. Well, that was not going to stop him from playing in the senior game. So with about 15 seconds left, uh, Tom Izzo did a, did a really class thing. He put Aaron Harris into the game so that Aaron Harris could get the ovation that he deserved in front of his home crowd and to kiss the logo uh, at center court one last time as time expired. So uh, I thought that was a really cool moment. If you haven't seen that uh, clip, it's, it's a very quick clip, but uh, to see him in a full knee brace hobbling on the court, but just so happy to just be on the court one last time at the Breslin Center. I thought that was a really cool moment. Uh, kudos to Tom Izzo for making that happen. And uh, Aaron Harris was, is one of those guys that uh, is a typical Spartan player where he, you know, he played well for four years. He was their heart and soul. He did everything that was expected and asked of him and more. Um, and is one of the great Spartans in uh, history. So congratulations to him. I'm glad he got to play in that last game or, or to at least appear uh, on the court in the last game. And props to Tom Izzo and the coaching staff for making that happen. Yeah, that's a cool story. Thanks for sharing with it. I, for my parting shot, I wanted to, to, it's not exactly a follow-up to Jason's second one, but kind of a mention of the, the sign of the times and how things have changed. Um, from 1997 to 2011, Duke won at least either the regular season or the ACC tournament championship all but two of those years, one of them being 2007, the year that we were at six seed and lost to VCU, and then, and then the following season when I think the program was still kind of recovering from that. Um, and Josh McRoberts had just left, et cetera, et cetera. So all but two of those years over, over a 14-year um, span when Duke won at least some kind of ACC championship. Since 2011, no ACC championships of any kind. Um, it's now 2017. There's not been a regular season championship. Duke could certainly come out and win the ACC tournament, um, but I, I don't think anyone is predicting that at this point. And what's what I think is particularly interesting about this is that in the stretch from you know around when JJ Redick was in college to until Duke won the national championship in 2010, and it may have lingered for a year or two after that. There was kind of this feeling that, that Duke had changed um, and that the program wasn't exactly in the in the same place where they were maybe earlier in the in the decade you know around 2000 2001 when duke was kicking everybody's butts in every game um there seemed like the acc was more competitive and that duke wasn't clearly the best team anymore um and you know is shashevsky declining okay 2010 comes duke wins the championship 2011 duke has kyrie irving who is hurt most of the year but shows that hey duke can play with these one and done guys and then austin rivers has a pretty good season, even though Duke doesn't do well in the tournament. And Jabari Parker has a great season at Duke, even though Duke doesn't do well in the tournament. Um, Duke wins the championship in 2015. But throughout all of this, um, throughout all the recruiting success, and I think the generally more positive attention that the program has received, there has been a lot less success for Duke in the conference. And I think that outside of our little DBR bubble, like, you know, sort of the obsessive ACC basketball fan, it doesn't seem like there's much emphasis on it. And I don't know if, if Mike Krzyzewski and the coaching staff care as much um, about, I mean, I, I know they care about the ACC championship. I wonder if the, if the focus has changed a little bit 
Um, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a different thing. But I, I thought it was an interesting thing to note that Duke hasn't won an ACC championship in that long, um, even though obviously there have been two uh, two national championships in the last seven years. So um, it's not like we have much to complain about, but it is a little bit of a different story than it was for Duke before. That's amazing. So, I, I mean, if you yeah. hadn't, if you had me think about it, I would have said, oh yeah, you're right. But just hearing it, um, uh, it's remarkable for, for a program that almost everyone considers to be, you know, the best or number two, you know, one of the top, certainly one of the top two or three programs in the country. Um, we haven't won a conference regular season or postseason title in a long, in six years, in a long time. And meanwhile, by the way, this past week, Kansas clinched their 753rd consecutive regular season Big 12 title, I believe. Right. So I was, I, I was going to say, it's interesting. Wait, was it 757 or 758? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I lost count. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm not Kansas, It was one of those. I think, I, I believe Kansas has won the Big 12 every year that I've been alive or something close to it. So, um, and that, and that it's been every year under Bill Self. He's uh, yeah, it, that guy. Is, that's one of the most he, amazing, he's an unbelievable coach. Sports. Yeah, it, it is absolutely. And I remember earlier this year there was a point at which where uh, both West Virginia and Baylor, uh, you know, I think we're ahead of Kansas in the standings, or, or you know, they're both in the top five. And I was like, this is the year Kansas is finally not going to win the title, you know, win the Big Twelve regular season title this year. I was wrong, and they, and they, <laughs> and they did it again. Yep, they do it. Oh, they do it every year. One final thing, one final thing, uh, side note all this, I had another final uh, parting shot. Quick love to the Duke women's basketball team. They trounced UNC uh, the other day um, over the weekend. Uh, I think it was 93-71. So props to them. I I was going to show them some love. I I totally forgot. My bad, ladies. You guys deserve that love. And go to hell, Carolina. All right, that's a great way to end it. Uh, Carolina can absolutely go to hell. Um, we'll talk to you again after the regular season is over to, to discuss the upcoming ACC tournament. Until then, for Donald Wine and Jason Evans, I am Sam Klein. This has been the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke fans, take us home.